Before we start, I want to acknowledge that there's quite a lot going on in the world at the moment. We've got the war in Ukraine, the floods in the eastern parts of Australia. The pandemic is still a thing, I guess. And my heart goes out to everyone whose lives are being screwed up by any of these things. It therefore feels a bit odd to be asking you to support my efforts, uh, but I am. The 9pm Autumn Series 2022 crowdfunder is up and running. Obviously, you should support your own family and friends first and then people in real need. But if you can contribute to this podcast, please do. Uh, go to the 9pmedict.com slash autumn2022 uh, and, and do the needful. All the usual things are there. Um, and I'd be most grateful. And I should also mention, uh, this episode was recorded back on the 17th of February before any of this stuff started happening. Little did we know. The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, politics, adult themes, and the occasional sexual reference. Sunday, the 6th of March, 2022. The summer series continues um, into autumn, which this is, although this episode was recorded in summer. Our guest today is Justin Warren, consultant, freedom of information, tragic hexagon enthusiast and creator of the Cyber Rating Labelling Scheme. He's also been looking at government surveillance reforms. In this episode, we consider some general principles. If a system is is broken this frequently, like you should probably turn it off or at least slow it down. Justin makes a modest proposal. We just restructure our entire society to be to be based on the video game Pong. Uh, and I, for one, am, am here for it. And we have a message for younger listeners about ear hair. Ear hair will feature in your life far more than you ever imagined. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm tweaking of the incompetent brain implants with Justin Warren. Justin Warren, what's been on your mind this week? Oh, oh hello, by the way. Yes. Hello, yes. Hello, and, and yes, long-time listener, second time. Caller. Second time on. It was October 2021. Was it really? That seems yes. like several decades ago now. So much uh, has happened. five months. Mm. Five long months. <sighs> this sounds yes, like well, it's going to be a bit of a low-energy podcast, so I'll come down to, you know. Is it low-energy? Oh, okay. Chat. I'll I can, quiet and I'll put some chatty. more energy up. We can, we can have a quiet chat. We can have a noisy chat. Oh, we'll see how it goes. But back to that first question. What's been on your mind? It's been on my mind. Well, I, I broke my brain uh, over the past couple of months by reading all of the Richardson report into Australia's electronic surveillance regime. Oh, um, and even the non-electronic one. And uh, Well, yes, I've, I've read all those bits as well. But, yes, we had, because uh, we had submissions coming in, oh, there were about nine different inquiries or something run over the Christmas break period, which is something that always seems to happen. Apparently government doesn't function until the final week of the year and then it does all of its work in three hours, uh, which, well, it mostly seems to be <laughs> let's just throw something out for consultation and let those poor Muppets out in civil society deal with it while we swan off to, to Hawaii. 
Yes, and it's not even the last week of the year. It's the last week before the election, the last week before Parliament decides. Oh, uh, that's now, this. yeah. No, this is, now. this is the traditional end of, end of year thing where Christmas is a surprise and mm-hmm. every year. And so they throw all this stuff out at us and then we have to spend our Christmas break writing policy submissions, which is, you know, huge fun, as I'm sure everyone can attest. Yes. Yes. Well, look, I, I will take you back to last year, to nearly a year ago, April uh, 2021. Have a listen to what's on this monkey's mind, literally. This is Pager. He's a nine-year-old macaque who had a Neuralink placed in each side of his brain about six weeks ago. If you look carefully, you can see that the fur on his head hasn't quite fully grown back yet. He's learnt to interact with a computer for a tasty banana smoothie delivered through a straw. We can interact with the Neuralinks simply by pairing them to an iPhone, just as you might pair your phone to a Bluetooth speaker. By recording from many neurons and feeding their activity into a decoder algorithm, we are able to predict Pager's intended hand movements in real time. As he's playing this game, we're wirelessly streaming in real time the firing rates from thousands of neurons to a computer. After only a few minutes of calibration, we can use the output from the decoder to move the cursor instead of the joystick. Pager still moves the joystick out of habit, but as you can see, it's unplugged. He's controlling the cursor entirely with decoded neural activity. Our goal is to enable a person with paralysis to use a computer or phone with their brain activity alone. Great game, Pager. And what better reward for a monkey than a banana? Uh, yeah, and that that whole thing is titled Monkey Mind Pong. Do you, do you that, mind a banana? Uh, <laughs> depends on where you put it. Um, is that real? Cause that, that is sounds- real. That is as in not satire. It's it's not an episode of look around you, because that's what it sounded like. So I'll tell people about look around you it, later you know. because it's a fabulous thing. But no, yes. that is a real promotional video from Neuralink demonstrating the technology. Well, after hearing that, I mean, why why wouldn't you want to let a billionaire inject things into your brain? Well, it's funny you should say that because in the last few weeks, Musk has been uh, explaining his next plans for Neuralink. In fact, he reckons they're about to start looking for human test subjects. And in fact, the other day they, um, uh, uh, what's the word, announced, advertised, is it is, for someone to be the head of these uh, clinical trials to just put a chip in a head. Uh, here's a report. <laughs> Literally the head. <laughs> in Yes, yes. It's, it's going to be one giant head. Oh, dear. But to give you a flavour of that, uh, The Independent in the UK has put together a lovely little 60-second uh, update. SpaceX and Tesla CEO Elon Musk is continuing to push the frontiers of neuroscience with controversial brain-computer interface startup Neuralink. 
A video posted to Twitter shows a monkey named Pager playing the video game Pong with his mind, thanks to a chip implanted in his brain. The post comes after an appearance by Musk on social media site Clubhouse in February, where he shared updates on the company's progress. According to Musk's predictions, Neuralink could shift to human trials sometime this year. We feel confident about getting the uh, the link procedure, the the installation of a link, done in under an hour. Um, so you can basically go in in the morning and leave the hospital in the afternoon. The chip is designed to read and write brain activity and could potentially aid patients with neurological diseases like Alzheimer's. Musk has referred to the device as a Fitbit in your skull, claiming it will one day give people telepathic powers. I'm pretty sure I've played that video game. Yeah, I, I, I've I've seen a number of of films and read a number of stories. Yeah, about you this end sort up of killing thing. that guy at the end. I think you give him a choice as to whether he should stop being evil or whether you actually press the button and fire him into space. The irony here is that we could do that with his own rocket. That would be kind of fun. Putting aside giving people telepathic powers, I, I want to go back to the monkey for a minute. Mm. If this monkey is playing Pong on the basis of its its brain activity, what happens if they give it another task? Because Pong is the only thing it knows how to do at the moment. Well, clearly that's we we everything just becomes Pong. That's that's what we need to do. We just restructure our entire society to be to be based on the video game Pong. Uh, and I, for one, am am here for it. I think there's some some really solid applications in um, public transport, for example. Well, I think we already see the the benefits of using Pong in in Tesla's self driving uh, algorithms. Um, they've been <laughs> yes. extremely successful at uh, at pushing objects into other objects. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is uh, that is that is the thing. Musk is uh, obviously extremely enthusiastic at surging ahead uh, with this, but there's a report this week from KVUE in Austin, in the Texas. You know, or K KVU, I bet that's pronounced uh, mm. in them. Uh, yeah, other people aren't quite so happy. Members of a physician's advocacy group have filed a complaint with U.S. Department of Agriculture against Elon Musk's company Neuralink, saying their testing of animals is unethical and violates the Animal Welfare Act. What they're doing is trying to create a brain-computer interface. So that means they are cutting open the skulls of these monkeys, up to 10 holes in each monkey's skull, implanting electrodes and then mounting a device on the skull of each animal. At least eight animals were euthanized. And then there are just chronic instances of animals being depressed, being lethargic, pulling out their hair, losing hair, losing weight. They used a substance called bioglue. This is an adhesive. And what they were doing is trying to fill the holes in the heads of the monkeys. That seeped into their brains. And in one of those monkeys, it caused brain hemorrhaging. And the animal became so sick, she was throwing up so much that she actually had open sores on her esophagus. But that's all right. They'll install the chip in you, dear Justin, in under an hour, and you can go home that afternoon. Um, I think that might be up for a bit of a fight if they try it on with me. But there are there are, is an endless supply of people who are apparently quite happy to pay money for this privilege. Um, we I mean, We should probably just let them at it. 
I mean, there are people who have um, done things like, I mean, Mr. I'll get his name wrong, but it has Disco and Gamma in it. Uh, in Sydney, who took the chip out of his Opal transport card and put that in his wrist so he could just wave his arm across the gate and get onto a train. And mm. that's that's fine because that chip isn't in his brain and he's an experimenter and he's taken on all the risk. He knows, he knows what he's doing in this mm. case. I can see a lot of nerds go, oh, wow, I can play Call of Duty without having a controller in my hand because that's what the world needs. I mean, it's it's not going to be used for letting disabled people walk again simply because the medical establishment will look at this and go, no, this is fucking insane. Well, what are you doing? It won't work anyway. The state of the art on all that sort of stuff is way better than any of this nonsense. Like, Neuralink isn't even good. It's no. ancient. Like, we've been doing better stuff than this for Decades. I, I just, it's, I mean, you've got to, I suppose that one, one way you sort of have to admire the hype machine. And, <laughs> yeah, and people believe all this shit. Just, yeah, how credulous people can be. Um, but then it, do, it does sort of make worry me a bit about, well, you know, if people can easily believe this level of nonsense and the, how easy it is to do that because there is such little pushback on these kinds of just, bonkers claims and we've had that locally with the the case of um there was a woman who who faked her own brain cancer um mm. and was you know given a credulous hearing on mainstream media on television and everything else and later up she was found guilty of fraud yeah and it does i mean a lot of this it does sort of make you boggle that like even with with tesla cars and so on the the, the clearly documented evidence of failures in its self-driving things and the, the problems that it has. And and generally medical research is pretty tightly monitored because of the history of abuse that has happened in the past. And uh, I suppose you know, this is at the point where we have to mention Nazis in this context, right? Well, there was that was why we came up with the idea of medical ethics in the first place, if I yes. seem to recall. Is it the Helsinki Agreement? Um, um Dr. Trent would probably be a better person to, to yes, interrogate on that front. Uh, and, and all of that. But in this context, it's worth mentioning then uh, uh, an article in Fortune um, magazine slash website uh, just the other day. It's called, well, the headline rather, was Inside Neuralink, Elon Musk's mysterious brain chip startup, a culture of blame, impossible deadlines and a missing CEO. So that's that's a promising opening. Again, this does sound like the backstory to a computer game where you are the protagonist who tries to take down the evil Musk pyre. Um, I, I, I know. Um, and the article goes on to say one of the things, I, as usual, I've linked to it on the podcast website, and I do recommend this one to read in full. It's, it's really quite a, a long and solid feature. It points out that... We've had the ability to put electrodes in a monkey's brain and teach it to play Pong since at least 2002, like 20 years ago. Mm. Um, in fact, since then, uh, these BCIs, brain-computer interfaces, um, have allowed monkeys, they're manipulating robotic arms remotely and they're performing like far more sophisticated actions than just operating a joystick. And I must say, here in Australia, I'll go on a bit of a 
rant here. I've been following the CSIRO's work on bionic eyes uh, for more than a decade. Now, back in 2011, so more than a decade ago, um, they had a 100-pixel grid um, which came from a camera and instead of using brightness, because they said the problem with low res, the fact that an object is bright doesn't tell you anything. If it's dark, is Mm. this like a hole you're about to step into or is it just the road going off into the distance? So they used brightness or the intensity of the dots to indicate distance. So anything close to you was suddenly bright. And I, I spoke to uh, one of the researchers in a, in a noisy environment, but here's, here's just a clip of, of like a much longer podcast. Well, the ultimate aim is implants. That's yes. a separate path from this uh, more theoretical work. How, uh, how far are we along the, the actual implant path? Well, um, we're, we're getting uh, quite close to our first implant, in fact. And I actually uh, would, would say that this work is very much integrated with that. I mean, what we're trying to do here uh, is develop what will be our, our navigation system for the first implant. We will provide software that will translate images to a representation. So this is very much targeting the actual implant itself. Now, as for when we're scheduled for first trials of that implant, well, 2013 is, is what we've, we've, we're delivering on. So by 2013, there will be a uh, human implant uh, of our electrode array. Uh, and this some form of representation will be used that we are determining right now through our human trials. And they did and in 2017 they spun it out into a company called Bionic Vision Technologies and it's a thing and there is Musk as you say faffing about and and torturing monkeys. Like how do you when brain implants are a known thing, I, I think of the cochlear out of a bionic ear, which is decades old mm. in humans, all manner of things, they seem to not know what they're doing. Well, yes, and people allow them to do this. And, like, it's it's one thing to not bother going to the library and decide to, you know, re-implement binary tree sorting from first principles, but <laughs> major medical interventions? I was like, are they, are they going to... I mean, are they going to reinvent the chainsaw from First Principles? Well, he reinvented the flamethrower from First Principles. Well, flamethrower, yes. If if listeners don't know the origins of the chainsaw, um, do look that up. I won't spoil it for you. Oh, I'll link to that. I'm I'm curious now too. Mm. On this subject of brain implants, now, couple. Where where is this story? Oh, IEEE Spectrum, the Institute of Electrical Engineers. Engineers that play with um, electrons in wires and shit. Mm. Um, Spectrum is their magazine. And uh, a recent story, uh, they they start off talking about Ross Durr and Barbara. And in a recent story, they talked to a few people who have Bionic eyes, and their bionic eyes come from uh, a company called Second Sight, except Second Sight has stopped making them. So one of the people involved, for example, was just crossing the street, just walking about doing their everyday activities, um, and they heard a little quiet beep, 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 which was their bionic eye powering down, and then that's it. No more... 
no more vision. So that was handy. Yes, which, I mean, the, again, this is a plot line from, like, science fiction stories and computer games um, where it, it is that what happens when the company that makes everybody's implants decides to suddenly change the pricing model and the thing that you need, like an anti-rejection drug that makes them keep working, suddenly costs nine times the price. I mean, we've already seen that happen with insulin. Yes. Um, now it's, you know, oh, sorry, you your monthly um, payment has gone, has now doubled in price uh, and your legs don't work if you say no. It's happening now because another person interviewed in that story uh, has his bionic eye, his brain implant, which now no longer works. Um, but it's also suspected, unrelatedly or, or not, we don't know, he might have a brain tumour. So he needs an MRI scan, except the MRI technician says, I'm not sticking your head in that thing until I can find out a bit more about this implant and how it might respond and how that might affect you, except, of course, the company doesn't support it anymore. Yeah. Yes, it's all of these knock-on consequences from things that we kind of haven't thought about, which is it's a, an, an horrific place to be as someone who needs that bionic eye. And this is, we have that sort of tension in a whole bunch of other areas, like the the raging surveillance and spy stuff of uh, that your, your little um, voice-activated dongles in your house um, from but my dongle uh, could activate without having to talk to it. Well, they're, they're, well it's, you, you need to get with the program still. You're, yeah. you're living in the past, there now it's all voice activated dongles. That's that's how it works. But you have to have a technology company based in the US intermediating this this process now. Mm. There's none of this direct manipulation. It can't be doing that. <laughs> you get, but in, no, I mean direct manipulation those, of your dongle does sound quite old fashioned, doesn't it? Does it? Uh, it's it's just not how it's done anymore. But the, the, tra- the problem with that is that you've got these, these tech companies who are surveilling everything that you do and selling your, your history of what you ask for to the highest bidder, and yet being able to use your voice to get blinds to go up and down or things to activate in the rest of your house um, from the disabled people that I've spoken with, it's a tremendous boon. So well, yes. how do we... How do we create a world in which the technology can make people's lives better whilst not simultaneously turning it into this weird Muskian dystopia? Well, I, I have a thought. It, it is clear uh, that chaps like Elon Musk can raise quite, quite a few billions of dollars doing things that uh, mostly young, young male geeks are happy to pay for. And there are, there are plenty of people like him. What we could do is have some sort of central agency that took some of the money that they've made and spent it on things for the good of the general public. Uh, We could call it a government. Could we, though? Haven't we tried that? It doesn't seem to be working. Well... As Winston Churchill said, et cetera, et cetera. it's, It's working very well for the people that are in charge of it. Yes. Yes. That brings us under many, many topics. Uh, but let's, let's, let's change the subject slightly. Mm-hmm. 
ASIO, Justin, the Australian Security and Intelligence Organisation. Uh, I am old enough to remember when uh, when it was almost denied that it even existed, and mm. uh, anyone who started talking about it publicly was treated as sort of a bit weird, if nothing else. Uh, but for a secret spy agency, it's been in the news rather a lot this week. I do have some specific things to uh, to draw our attention to, but what stood out for you? Uh, well, um, I saw earlier the news today that for the second time in two days, I think, um, ASIO's intelligence has been used to make specific partisan attacks in Parliament, which uh, there is a specific section in the ASIO Act that says that ASIO should not do anything that will cause it to be partisan or even be seen to be partisan because of previous acts where ASIO did things that were extremely partisan. Yes. This is after the head of ASIO in trying to be more open and trying to be a little bit more forthcoming about what the agency does and why we should allow it to exist. He has specifically said, don't do that to us, you Muppets. Indeed. He he said that in Senate estimates. Uh, and then not that many days later, went on the telly, like on ABC TV's 7.30, mm. on the television to make that exact same point. The Prime Minister in Parliament this afternoon has referred to the Deputy Labor Leader as the Manchurian candidate, uh, which he then withdrew. We've heard the Defence Minister Peter Dutton the other day claim that Anthony Albanese was China's preferred candidate. How concerned are you about politicians weaponising national security and intelligence in the lead-up to the election? Uh, So there's two things I'd say there. One, the foreign interference is against all members of Parliament, so it doesn't go after one particular party or the other. So it's kind of uh, equal opportunity in that regards. In terms of um, what politicians do, I won't comment on what politicians do, but let me take it back to what I really do care about. ASIO um, is apolitical. My staff are apolitical. They put their lives on the line to actually protect Australians and Australia from threats to security, the Act, the AZ Act, requires us to be apolitical. I take that very seriously. We can't make your job any easier when our politicians do politicise it. So I'll, I'll leave the politics to the politicians, but I'm very clear with everyone that I need to be that um, that's not helpful for us. That's not helpful for us. We are both familiar with bureaucratic speak. <laughs> Well, Mr. Burgess does have to be very careful because he's correct. It's it's a it is extremely against the law for him to um to use his position as head of ASIO for political reasons. Um, uh, for those uh, of you new to all this, look up the Hope Royal Commission, which was a thing because back in the day, ASIO was run. Uh, well, it had a longer leash, shall we say? Perhaps not even any leash at all. Mm, uh, it's uh, ripping yarn. Yeah, it's. Fabulous stuff, and the agency goes to great pains, as Mike Burgess has done at length this week, to say no, well, without referring to that, but essentially saying, we we don't do that shit anymore. We are not like that. And before, before I get letters, I am aware that, yes, there have been a number of cases where ASIO officers have gone beyond what they are legally permitted to do. Uh, I'll leave you to look them up for yourselves. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not pro the spook, yay, let them, you know, there's nothing wrong with them, but 
No, and that's to the to Mr. Burgess's credit, he has been uh, in his in his speech um, last week or the week before. He made a bunch of statements there, which is partly a recruiting pitch for trying to get ta- talent. Oh, to there's come always out a bit of a recruiting. It's always pitch a bit of recruiting speeches. pitch. Um, but there there is a certain amount of of signalling there about what ASIO is for and what it is trying to say, and some of that is not directed at us. It is directed internally within ASIO at some people in there who might be of the old school and think that they shouldn't have quite as many fetters on it and don't quite understand the civilian controls. And the the trajectory of history, which is to bring these kinds of agencies much more onto a legislative footing, much more under civilian democratic control uh, and oversight of what they're doing and why, and that that is necessary in order for them to to um, can t- retain their social license, and without that, we just we'll di- we'll disband the thing. Um, so he's right to do that. He is. Uh, I don't think we're about to disband ASIO. That's not on the agenda yet. But that does lead very nicely into the next topic. <laughs> Well, let's move on then uh, to, to the Richardson <laughs> Review, uh, which has the catchy title, Comprehensive Review of the Legal Framework of the National Intelligence Community, brackets, Comprehensive Review. Uh, Dennis Richardson himself was a former head of ASIOs, former diplomat and extremely well-respected public servant in Australia. Uh, he produced, well, the unclassified version of this report is 1,300 pages, and then there's a government response, and then there's other commentary, and Justin Warren, you've read it. I skipped some of the tables, um, which sort of <laughs> reprise parts of it. I think I, I may have glossed over one of the appendices, but yes, I, yeah. I read... I read it all. The, the government response was a, a dead easy read. That was like 50 pages and it mostly just said, yes, we agree um, to most of the recommendations. Well, or, or we agree or we agree in yeah. principle, yeah. Yeah, 90% of it was just like, yes, agreed. There was a few was like, agree in principle and then there's a descri- then, then the explanation is how they completely disagree actually, um, <laughs> but you have to read between the lines to figure out that they're telling you, yeah, we totally disagree with that. Which then means, all right, this is going to a bit we'll all have to come back to over the course of the next two years as we yeah, design. Yeah, well, one. maybe. Yeah, yeah, we'll see about that. They have in the consultation, well, in the discussion paper that was out more recently that we put in a submission on, um, that they were talking about getting it done, like having legislation in next year. I assume yeah, they nah. mean the end because that's at the very aggressive side of the two to three year time frame, which was the optimistic estimate that Richardson put on it. I should say um, that the whole point of this review was noting that since 9-11, there have been, what, 80, more than 80 now, different pieces of legislation. pieces of legislation, and I, I'll have to check the number, but it's around 14,000 specific amendments. Yeah. So basically the Intelligence Services Law in Australia is a bit of a mess, and let's sort it out. And Richardson was given the task of looking at it and he basically came back and said, this is only going to get worse unless we basically start with a blank sheet of paper and some comments about rights and powers and all of those fundamental things and start 
again, which is fabulous. Mm. Uh, he did estimate, what was it, two to three years of work and $100 million uh, to do all this. It's a lot of legislation. And that's that's the easy bit. That's, yes. Well, actually, no, that's the sort of medium difficulty but worth it part. There's a more complicated version which also involves um, changing all of the state legislation around surveillance devices. That was going to add another yeah. two years, I think. And then you've got to uh, write training programs and retrain all the spooks and cops in Australia and rework their computer systems so that little things like, as some state police uh, problems had, what's meant to happen in theory if there's a surveillance activity in relation to a certain case, then once that case is finished and the appeals period is gone and blah de blah blah there's like at some fixed point after that, all that data has to be deleted. Mm. And some states haven't been. It's funny, that. Well, you could say it's just incompetence. Deleting, (laughs) I was about to say deleting things from computers is hard. No, in my experience, I found it all altogether way too easy. Um, I guess the way to put it is computers are good in that data you want to keep often disappears and data you want to delete often sticks around unless you really think about it. Yes, and if there's one thing that we in the Australian government of all stripes have done well is to think deeply about how computers should work and how we should use them. So uh, the Richardson Review, in, in a nutshell, what do you think the, the big things are here that we should pay attention to? I mean, obviously we could talk for days about it and perhaps we will over the coming years. Oh, indeed. Um, it, it took days to read, so we, we <laughs> probably should give it a bit of a, a go. Um, so, what's the, so I did do a quick thread the other, other week and I, I wrote it up, a little TLJR, like too long, Justin Reid, um, on what the highlights were. For me, there were, there were a couple of of big things to pull out. Yes, it's a it's a dog's breakfast, um, and it has pretty much gone one way, which is to grant more and more power to agencies of all kinds, um, ostensibly to go after terrorism, but most of it gets used to go after um, drugs. Um, it is absolutely not really used the way it was supposed to be, um, but it's also very messy and difficult to comply even if you want to. Like even if you actually do try to comply with warrant requirements and make sure you only you follow the right process to get one and only collect the data that you're supposed to get and everything else, because there's so many amendments layered on amendments layered on amendments, it's really hard to do it well, let alone actually, you know, accidentally doing it badly. I will so say that it did hit me as I was reading the uh, the the commentary. Like when, for example, the Australian Federal Police has uh, been been caught, the Inspector General of Intelligence Security has noted that the AFP uh, has occasionally like done surveillance and they haven't had the right warrant for it or whatever. And mm. and I would say I just the Inspector General's office is really solid about this, and I know that that they keep a very close eye on this, and I know. All of the tinfoilers and even even people who are less paranoid say, "Oh well, of course it was just a mistake." But when when I actually looked at what it is and like which of the twelve different warrants applies in these circumstances and what are the rules, um, and I've got to sort the paperwork by tonight so I can get it to the judge, um, I can I can see how 
you know, Sergeant Plod could easily fuck it up um, and their yeah, superintendent I, not notice. And that's like, that's not, it's sort Again, of Again, not to excuse blah, 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 you know. No, and it's like, and it's. It feels like it's defending it and it, it's actually not, it's making it worse because it's like we've already seen from the Obmansman report, like it's a systematic problem. Tens of thousands of times they break the law, but they don't really have to do anything much about it. It's like, hang on, if something, if a system is is broken this frequently, like you should probably turn it off or at least slow it down. You know, if it was if it was some other device that was out of control, swinging like a lathe in a in a workshop or something, and it was swinging around an axe handle that you hadn't quite you know properly fixed, and accident you know maiming someone every two couple of days, you you'd probably at least put a little bit of danger tape around it and maybe say you know stay away from this dangerous area. But with these mm-hmm. sorts or of call powers, over call over Susan because she's looked at this machine before and knows. How you can use it safely, so so always see Susan before using this lathe. Yeah, yeah. stuff like that, and it's, and and there are recommendations in in Richardson for exactly that. So when you're going to use new powers, then you should check, you know, call the regulator or or whoever the oversight department is, and say I'm about to do this. You know, get them to check it. Practice on things and under closer supervision when it's a novel use of a, even a power that you've had before. If you're doing something novel with it. Check with someone else to just go. Is this dangerous and insane? Um, you know, how many legs am I going to cut off if I try this? To go, you know what? Maybe slow down a tad. But we don't do that. We just go, you know what? Here, Sergeant Plod. Here's a bunch of brand new powers. Go your hardest. We'll and when you fuck it up, because you inevitably will, because we've given you no real training, um, and we've just and we've got this culture that you can do basically whatever you like. There aren't going to be any consequences when you screw up. The you know the mayhem will continue until compliance improves, which it never seems to do. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 no real punishment, and I, and I must say, in, in the context of that, when uh, the Assistance and Access Act like was changing by the hour, right up until it was passed as law just mm. before Christmas of the other year, and then right from beginning of January, off you go, use this new law, and it's like, <laughs> what. It, yeah, how how did anyone think that this would go well? And yet the response to this is like, and I'm not I'm not actually saying that we should sack individual officers for you know failure to do the paperwork on a systemic issue like this. Under other circumstances, absolutely they should be fine. Um, but for this sort of stuff, it's like no, no, this is a systemic problem. But on in terms of what is the con- what is the consequence for poor decision making um, and poor use of a system, it's like well, look, if you drink drive, we take your license away, and you're not allowed to drive anymore. Mm. Um, you do it too much. We take your car away. Hoon stuff. Like if you go hooning, we impound your car. But when police officers systematically misuse their powers, we don't take them away. I think mm. we should. If if it is if a system is unsafe to you, if it cannot be used safely, then we should stop using it until we can figure out how to use the system safely. And on that note, because as I said, we can talk about this forever, we will come back to it another time. Mm. Let's take a break and do the housekeeping.
earlier in the uh, the episode, uh, Justin and I commented on uh, the the monkey video and the narration. Uh, I mentioned that it was in the style of "Look Around You," and I said I'd tell you about that. "Look Around You" is uh, a parody, a satire. Uh, of early 1980s uh, educational films on TV, in English uh, ones. It was uh, a whole bunch of episodes uh, done in the early 2000s, produced uh, and written by Robert Popper and Peter Serafinovich, uh, and they're hilarious. The the first one, and you can find them on YouTube. I've linked to the Wikipedia article, but you can you can get to hunt around and find them. Uh, the first one on calcium, um, yes, it starts sort of straight, and then look, they're lovely. It's called "Look Around You." They're, uh, look, if you're geeky, you'll love them. Uh, this is. The final episode in the summer series. Yes, I know it's uh, into autumn a little bit, uh, but as you know, there's quite a lot happening at the moment. And uh, I want to say, again, thank you to all the people who contributed to the 9pm summer series 2022 uh, crowdfunding campaign. You made uh, all these episodes possible, uh, so it's your fault, basically. Um, thank you. And thank you this episode also to someone who uh, threw a tip in, Neil Collier. Thanks, Neil, uh, for that. Uh, and for those of you who have yet to support the pod, or even if you have already, uh, look, I know there's a lot happening. We've got the war on. We've got the floods uh, continuing. We've got a whole range of stuff going on. But I have, in fact, launched the crowdfunding campaign for the next series, the Autumn Series. It's called the 9pm Autumn Series 2022 on Possible. If you want to contribute to that, please consider it and go to the 9pmedict.com slash autumn2022. Or just go to the website. There's a big thing for it on on the front page. Uh, Currently, as we record this on Sunday afternoon, as in recording this housekeeping bit uh, on the 6th of March. We're about a quarter of the way to target one, so thank you. That's that's excellent, but obviously we need uh, to do that a bit more. Uh, you have until Thursday the 17th of March uh, to contribute, so please have a bit of a think. Uh, whether you can afford it, um, obviously give uh, more important uh, things uh, your priority. Uh, but if you can support uh, the pod, that'll be lovely. Thank you. The 9pmedic.com uh, slash autumn2022. All of the usual things are on offer. You can buy trigger words. You'll hear some of them in a minute. Uh, you can buy whole conversation topics, etc., etc. You know the drill. Thank you. And speaking of trigger words, Justin, it's yes, that time I can, again. I can see the glass jar of transparency. Yes, I'm, I'm going to give it a bit more of a stir because uh, one of our regular contributors sent a whole bunch through to catch up on a backlog and I I don't want to give them every single one we pull out, but <laughs> I'll pull out this one. This one, <laughs> this one is from Peter Leverink, who who <laughs> who was the person I was referring to. Uh, 
But this word is, in fact, from his previous batch that he sent through. I see. He buys batches of three, like, nearly every season. Mm. So, love the money, Peter. That's all. Integrity. I think it's good. We should have some. Right. Well, Um, that's that one. No. Yes. (laughs) I we think definitely to give Peter his money. So, I mean, we talked about cops and spooks. We talk about ethics and geeks and things. But integrity more broadly is something that's very much on your mind usually, isn't it? Um, it is. I mean, I I guess I am a fan of Spider-Man. I, I believe in the uh, with great power comes great responsibility. I think someone said that before Spider-Man said it. Probably. I know it from Spider-Man. Okay, you you keep explaining. I'll look it up. So I mean, that's that's kind of how I view things generally, and I'm I've particularly become interested in power, uh, the idea of power and and power disparities. That's that's kind of the lens I use to to view governance. Um, it is. I was. I think we're going to talk about it a little bit later on, but I I read a very interesting paper. Unfortunately, just after I read all the Richardson review. Um, which is about the tyrant test, um, which is about designing systems for to be governed. And, and a lot of it is about, you know, trust but verify. That's one way of doing things, which is from Ronald Reagan said that about, I think it was about nuclear disarmament. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It was uh, in response to one of the nuclear disarmament treaties and said, mm. look, we trust the Soviet Union to do the right thing, but we'll just check. But we'll, we'll just, check. And, and the open yeah. skies policy was continued we oh the open skies policy oh, this is a bit of a rant the open skies policy is a thing by which the soviet union and the united states could fly their aircraft over the other side mm. to monitor their nuclear weapons facilities mm. to see if there are any new silos being built to make sure you know reactors were where they were being reported and so on, and and that was broadly extended to some other nuclear nations. Trump pulled the US out of the Open Skies Treaty. I oh, don't know whether Biden has put it back yet. Mm. Well, and that's yeah, that's that's not the sort of behaviour you have when you want to be trustworthy, is it? It's like you, you're going. It looks like you're going to hide something. No, and indeed, Putin. Yeah, Putin basically said, "Yeah, all right then, go for it." Or, or not go for it. Yeah, we're we're happy for you to not verify the trust. Yeah, but yeah. to come back to um, that policy, and you are going to go on to another one. But the phrase "with great power comes great responsibility" was recorded at least as old as the first century BCE, with the illusion being the sword of Damocles. Uh, And you can also find a similar one in the Bible, the Christian Bible, uh, the parable of the faithful servant, which is Luke chapter 12, verse 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Yes. And that that is Spider-Man. Not a new, so it's not a new idea, but (laughs) Spider-Man. I I like Spider-Man. But I... I like that idea because it does encapsulate a lot of what I think is missing, particularly at the moment around integrity, about the integrity of people that have been entrusted with a great deal of power and yet they, the, we see the way that they choose to use it 
what bothers me about that, I think, is that the expectation seems to have um, eroded that there should be great responsibility accompanying that power. And instead, it seems to go the other way. Like I, the the phrase we have at the moment is, you know, the Australian media loves to hold the public to account. Like, well, hang on, we don't actually have a lot of power in this situation. The people with power and money are the ones who should be under far greater scrutiny of how they do it, of what they do with that power. And there should be, quite honestly, greater consequences when they misuse those positions of power, which which may not be, you know, it may not be permanent, but it should be as like, well, you, you can't be trusted with this power, so we'll take it away and give it to someone else who can't. That theme continues. Thank you, Peter Leverding. That's a fabulous word. That one's out the system. Should we do another? Yeah, why not? Because, uh, you know, we can never otherwise find anything to talk about. Guess <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, who it's from? Peter. Peter Leverding. <laughs> but, but this is better. The word is tweak. Tweak? T-W-E-A-K. Now, I'm sure there are multiple meanings of the word. Uh, tweak means to make little adjustments to. Mm. Um, a tweaker can be someone who's on amphetamines. Mm. Uh, a verb, to twist or pull something sharply, such as tweaking someone's ear. It is a word. It's, it's one of those words that's fun to say, tweak. Yeah. Like llama or shenanigans. They're just, they sort of, I don't know, they have a nice mouthfeel. Shenanigans to is nice, yeah. Shenanigans is one of my favourite words. I'm now trying to remember which author said that the most beautiful word in the English language was cellar door. There is, yes, and there is a whole theory around exactly why that is. I have Celador. read a bunch of it about the assonance and the noun phrases or whatever, the, the particular phonemes and the ordering and why that, that particular phrase is a good one. And there's also a theory about why some words are um, particularly funny, like duck, honk, bees. Particularly when part of how you say it, I think. <laughs> but yes, I, I, duck, I don't honk, know. bees is that's Howitzer that's a pretty good isn't. that's that's a good name for a band, I reckon. Duck, honk, bees. <laughs> Uh, at this point, we must mention the the classic Monty Python sketch about woody or tinny words. I will I will link to that. Um, I, w- I won't drop it into the podcast because they they can be a little aggressive about copyright. Um, yes. And yes, it it has some important visual aspects. I think you need to see in the video. Um, in the theme of what we've been talking about, what this what this triggers for me. It would trigger Richardson as well, Dennis Richardson, on that. Yes, we're constantly tweaking little bits instead mm. of going, no, wait, this whole entire thing is fucked. Let's get a new one. People do that with cars. They buy a new car when the old one's had enough or it is insufficiently fashionable. Well, mm. whatever. And I want to bring in the sunk cost fallacy. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's just you ignore what happened beforehand when you're trying to figure out what to do now. I suppose um, I should explain it, shouldn't I? Yes, probably. Sunk cost fallacy, basically, 
if there's some project happening and you've already spent $5 million on it and you realise it's going very, very, very badly, there, there is the psychological uh, uh, phenomenon of going, well, we've already spent $5 million on it, we'll have to keep going, which is not true. The $5 million is gone. Um, you are starting from where you are now, not where you were at the beginning of the project. So the real question is, what is the best way to get from where we are now to where we want to be? Uh, yes. Which is terribly we, unpopular in government circles. Yes. Um, well, it's a backflip, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. We're not ever allowed to change our minds. Um but then government tends not to either, even when the evidence mounts up, which is incredibly frustrating um, because you then waste another two years doing the wrong thing and it's like, we're, you know, we're going in the wrong direction, but we're making great time. Um, <laughs> On the other hand, in, mm. we as humans do a bit of this. I mean, in embryonic oh, form, we grow gills and then throw them away. Well, it doesn't kill us. That's that's the thing. We we haven't. We're not a planned economy kind of thing. Like the, the we exist in this form because this was slightly less deadly than whatever the other alternative was. Mm. This is not optimal. It, far from it. In fact, many things about the human body. I mean, I'm I'm getting on a bit now. Not not quite the same vintage as yourself still. Yeah, but thank you very you know, much. As as we all discover as we age, I think we discover just how suboptimal the human body really is. Bits less, bits work less well. Yes. Yeah. It's like why mm. why is ear hair? You know, as a as a man of a certain age, out. ear hair does like if you are a, the younger listeners will not appreciate this. I think ear mm. hair will feature in your life far more than you ever imagined. What I love about a good barber is when you're getting a haircut, they will they will quietly just deal with ear hair, <laughs> eyebrows, yes. uh, possibly the hair on the back of the neck down to your collar line. You know, it's 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 not just, it's not requested, it's not offered. Just a it's few tweaks. A few tweaks. Thank you once again to Peter <laughs> Lee. Should we try a third? We might get someone else. Yeah, let's try. All right. If we get Peter again, though, we'll have to worry about the glass jar of transparency. Okay, it's from someone else, so that's good. It's from Sheepy, who Excellent. is, again, a regular one. Uh, and he suggested we talk about, well, we are triggered by PR Guy 17 oh, the Twitter identity. Okay. Now, this is particularly interesting that this came up today uh, because... <sighs> Look, I'll say journalist. He bills himself as a journalist for a thing called Rebel News, a guy called Avi Yemeni, uh, who is a, uh, convicted of various violent crimes and mm. uh, has some odd views in the world. His his Twitter handle is Osraeli Avi. Uh, so uh, he... Well, I don't... <laughs> I don't want to sort of get into the whole him being from a Zionist perspective and a right-wing perspective because the weirdness has other aspects, but he has announced this week that he's going to reveal who PR Guy 17 is. PR Guy 17 being a sort of Labor-supporting Twitter account, uh, well, shit poster, really. 
Now mm. that I've introduced this, do we want to talk about uh, perhaps not those individuals because by the time this is posted, this is possibly old news. Oh, I know what fits in with this. The new anti-trolling legislation, which is about uncovering the identity of anonymous people on social media so you can sue them for defamation, mm. which is not a law yet, but uh, uh, Mr Yemeni has uh, a federal court case underway to require Twitter to identify this person without the mm. backing of the new law, just a straight-up court case. Yes, well, this does, it brings up some of the aspects of what we talked about before about power, who has it and how it gets used. So, mm. I mean, defamation law is not particularly accessible. Um, even Richardson in his report notes that um, federal court action is not accessible to most people because of expense and lawyers and so on. So it, it's not actually an effective remedy. The rule of law in that aspect doesn't work very well. Um, this legislation is like it's, Having actually read it, rather than just the media commentary about it, it's a bit of a bold, grab bag. Bold action, that. Well, yeah, I know. It's yeah, shocking. I like to actually see what it actually will do rather than what people say it will do. Well, um, pro this- tip um, to anyone wanting to look uh, at these things and get into the whole thing of looking at government policy, you can be almost guaranteed that the vast majority of people writing about proposed new legislation have not actually read it. Yes. They've read a news report on it and then they're running commentary based on the news reports and then other commentators uh, react to that commentary. Yeah. But no one actually reads it. If you're very lucky, they might have read the explanatory memorandum, which does not have the force of law um, but does – Sometimes provide you with a bit of context about what the what they say the thinking is behind yes, the legislation. Yes, the explanatory memorandum is the sales pitch. Yes, for the law, they are always compatible with human rights legislation. Um, always, it's such a mystery, and always yeah. have no impact uh, financially on the government. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's positive. It's yes. definitely going to re- return. Like Robinet was definitely going to be extremely positive towards some. Um, Government finances, but yeah. Uh, so this legislation, I have actually read it. Um, it's weird. So like have it's, I. And it's yes, it is weird. very poorly written. Um, it's it's a grab bag. I mean, I'm I mean, poorly it, written. Is it from? I'm not quite sure what the top score would be of mm. excellent legislation. I can't think of an example off the top of my drafted. head. Oh, it's probably out of ten. I'd probably give it a three. From on a scale of of of. Craig Kelly's anti-vaccination rant legislation mm. and sookage about that to, I don't know, the Ten Commandments, which which have the advantages that they're brief and clear-ish. Well, kind of. I mean, they're, they they haven't worked very well either, strangely enough. Um, well, again, like most, most laws, it's, it's arbitrary application. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose so. Thou shalt not cover thy neighbour's donkey. Um yeah, it's oh look, I'd give it a three. It's it it has they've they've kind of munged a whole bunch of different bits together. So the the actual purpose of the legislation, like the real purpose, is the government is having a sook about losing um, the uh, the Dylan Voller case, um, and media outlets everywhere are very unhappy about the decision from the judge in the case, which said, look, you wanted a commercial benefit from having a Facebook page. 
and you wanted to gain that benefit without doing any of the heavy work of moderating the cesspool of comments that are on your page. They had a bit of a whinge, said, oh, yeah, but Facebook made it hard and all this sort of stuff. So um, Facebook has since changed that and you can actually moderate comments and so on. But this legislation will then go to what the media companies want it to be, which is that we have no responsibility for the comments that we have enabled under our pages. Um, unlike like blogs from back in the day, all newspapers are now blogs, but we don't want to do comment moderation because that's hard. Um, so we won't. So we don't want to be publishers under Australian defamation law, and they are at the moment. This legislation will take that away, but it will make Twitter, Facebook, and everyone else. They get to be publishers, which to me is like there's a whole bunch of really quite nuanced and difficult conversations there. It's a little bit like saying Telstra is a publisher because they have a, you, you're saying things over the phone line. It's not quite like that. It's a lot more discretion. Right, you can put a website up on Telstra's platform. You can. And then it's like, well, hang on, are they is Telstra the publisher? Are you the publisher? Who's the publisher? And it's it is really about going, who is a publisher in the modern age of social media? And that's a really difficult one. All um, this was argued out, of course, in the in the age of um print publication. Because if yep. if defamation happened or something illegally, like all right, there's the journalist. Let's say it's a journalism example. There's the journalist, there's the editor, there's the newspaper they write for as a company. Yep. There's the printer who printed it. Yes. There's the truck driver, plural, who yep. took it to the news agent. And then there's the news agent who actually took money for it yep. and handed it to someone. Now, there, there is a long series of precedents which basically said, in the real world, the printer, the truck driver, the news agent, they don't read the whole newspaper before being part of the process. Mm. I think there was a case where the printer was found liable, though, which is there in was reading some of that. Um, in the 70s yeah, or 80s from memory. Yeah. And I think it had to do with pornography or obscene material rather than... It usually does, yeah. Yes. Um, that's often how it works. But, yeah, and th then there's the defence of innocent dissemination and a few other bits. So the, the law has already wrestled with a lot of this. It just hasn't wrestled with it with computers. And social media is a little bit different because it's sort of a hybrid between publishing and um, a, a pure conduit like a telephone line. Or, or indeed, a conversation. So yeah. Something like Twitter has more the characteristics in many cases of a conversation mm. with people just banter back and forth. It's all about the bants. But at the same time, other people are using it as a publishing platform if all they do on Twitter is post links to their magazine articles, say. Yep. So it's it's one of those cases where technology has moved so quick. It's moved so fast that the law hasn't been able to keep up. And unfortunately, the law also brings along a lot of its historical baggage every time there's a new case. It's actually quite hard to jettison old ideas. Most of the time, that's good. Um, we don't want to have to decide that the rule of law is a good thing on every single case. We would Precedent is quite handy. But there are times when it sort of isn't, re it's a little bit clumsy in a new situation. So sometimes sort of tweaks are out. good. Sometimes and tweaks are good. Um, yes, sometimes they're not. The The trick is figuring out when. And that's, theoretically, that's what democracy is for, is us figuring out the answers to these questions together. Um, in this case, though, it it is definitely a case of uh, powerful people don't like the, the pause, getting uppity and talking back to them on the socials. 
So we want to make sure that we have a way to shut them up. Indeed, if you scroll back through some recent episodes of this podcast, you'll find a bonus episode where I was a guest on the Tech Policy podcast uh, from uh, ANU, and we spoke about this case where I said quite bluntly that this law is about uh, protecting, uh, well, it's about having a way for for powerful white men to have a sook and get back at people who've said nasty, nasty things about them. Mm. Uh, And it was very nice to have, uh, uh, well, the Attorney General's Department itself say basically that that was it. It's not not about trolls at all. And there's some other bits that they're sneaking in at the same time, which I think, like the follow legislation, like that, okay, clarity under the law, that would be kind of cool. But... There's also bits around, speaking of the Attorney General's Department, there's parts in that law which say that the Attorney General's Department can join in uh, and basically use public money to fund a protagonist of a defamation action because it's in the public interest in somehow for someone who, an individual person in their private capacity being defamed, defending them is somehow in the public interest. And just the the confused. This is thinking Peter Dutton versus that, Shane Bazzi comes immediately to mind there. Or or indeed, uh, so I, I would say not so much that one um, because he won. It's more the case of people who then who actually sued others for defamation and lost spectacularly. Oh, we're um, thinking of Christian Porter. I, I'm thinking of of a couple of individual. Well, that that's one way of losing. Um, there's other. <laughs> Um, I mean, that he, he would claim that it wasn't a loss, that they, they settled and, and so on, but um, certainly he wasn't able to get his costs paid by the ABC. Um, so this would He got his help. costs paid by someone. Yes, and, and isn't a speaking of integrity. Yeah. Um, There's a hell of a theme in this yeah. episode, isn't there? It's not, a, it's not a blind trust either. That bothers me. A blind, this is a – he – the trust there knows who the donors are. A blind trust is something that you put your investments in so that you can't know how they're being spent. The people who are investing in this thing absolutely know how the money is being spent, um, and this is just being used as a vehicle to funnel money to people. It's not kosher. Um, Wacko. Yeah. So there's there's that part in the legislation, along with the the you know the incentives to unmask people who say these things on Twitter. Is like okay, Twitter. You don't. You are a publisher, unless you turn state's evidence and snitch on your <laughs> users for us. So if you agree to to um, if you agree to snitch, then we'll let you not be a publisher anymore. But you have to you have to give up give up the grass. Sheepy, thanks very much for triggering that conversation. Very triggering indeed. There'll be more. Uh, next episode. Uh, we got distracted, Justin. We were talking about the tyranny test, which you, ha- I must say, mm. you had beautifully introduced it as a response to one of the trigger words. And I thought, wow, that is going to make this much neater and sound like it was all improvised. And now we fucked it up. So the tyranny test. Yes, the, the tyrant test, I think. They've, oh, the tyrant test, yeah. sorry. So, yes, I think it's it's sort of the tyrant lens and then it's it's called the tyrant test in this this paper that I read. It's 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 quite interesting. Um, I don't actually have it in front of me, but I 
I, I, it, it triggered in me a, a couple of thoughts because this one was specifically around uh, policing and surveillance and, and that sort of thing, which was top of mind for me after reading Richardson. Um, and it, it proposed sort of multiple lenses of how people have traditionally thought about this. And one is the trust test of, well, we trust people to use these powers properly. Um, that's why we give them to them. And okay, can like, I roll back a bit because yep. it's called the tyrant test? Yes. And I, my first thought was, is this like the psychopath test? Like you answer some questions about the way you respond to different situations and the answer comes back, yeah, you're a fucking psychopath. Or not? It is not, no. Okay. It is a... So it's like a, the Bechtel test. Uh, kind of, yeah, I think so. It's a, it's a way of thinking about... I just, I just keep throwing these things in, sorry. The Bechtel test is the one that says... Uh, does this film have a conversation between two female named characters and their conversation is not about a man? Yes. So that gives you some criteria that you can tick off and say, you know, okay, is, is this tyrannical? Um, or, you know, is, is this a, a Bechdel situation? It's like, tick, you know, oh, have we got one of these? <laughs> yeah. It, does this film actually have real female characters with their own independence yeah. and, and so on? It's a fair yes. test. Okay, so tyrant test, back to the yeah, so thread. The, the tyrant test, it's it's sort of along the lines of, um, I suppose it does go along the, the, the sort of the 12 tenets of fascism or something, where, where you've got sort of the criteria of this is what it looks like. Um, you don't have to tick every box, but if you get enough of them, then it's like mm, probably a tyrant. Um, it's a DSM-5. Uh, well, I don't think it goes quite that far, but yeah, maybe. Um, okay. uh, there's probably some well, overlap. Well, DSM five, the um, diagnostic something manual for oh, for psychiatric illnesses is yes, yes. It's it's a whole. If you tick six more than six out of ten of these boxes, you have bipolar disorder or yeah, whatever it or, might be. You know, oh no, sorry, you, you know, here, you have chronic fascism. Here, take these pills. Um, uh, as opposed to you feel better. Oh no, you only get a few of them. You're just a cunt. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. But so this one, this one is more about looking at systems of particularly surveillance uh, and power structures. Um, larger, who should have power over others, and how should it be used? So it has it proposes four lenses. One of them is the is the tyrant lens, but it starts with the trust lens, which is you know, do do we is there a trust based approach to surveillance, which is often what we do? Then there's the trap lens, which is that well, any surveillance is a trap because it's going. They're trying to trick you into giving the power to to them so that they can then trap you with the surveillance. Which people have some credible evidence for why that's that's possible. Then there's a kind of technocratic lens, which he says is that's often how we do things, where we'll say, well, we'll give you surveillance powers, but we'll also give it lots of oversight and transparency and boxes to fill in, you know, checklists and paperwork. So and this is uh, technocratic in the policy wonk sense. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. we'll, basically we'll construct a bureaucracy to, to manage the situation that we've created for ourselves. Um, and the last one is, and it's, it's written by an American, so it takes, it sort of goes, the Fourth Amendment tells us how we should deal with this, uh, which is yeah. to take a tyranny lens and look at it as how do we design a system where we presume that a tyrant will acquire these powers and use them against us. How can we bake something into the system to make sure that there are effective counterbalancing powers that will actively resist the tyrant rather than it being more of a, well, we'll check and if you look like you might be coming down with a mild case of tyranny, 
um, then we might think about possibly considering doing something about it in the fullness of time um, after appropriate consi- uh, consideration and consultation, mm. which is basically what we do now. Um, so I quite liked that tyrant test because it is it does explicitly talk about power structures and it talks about how do you create additional powers that can act in opposition to what are quite extraordinary powers that only a very isolated few are able to use. How do we gift other powers to people? Say, like, okay, I'm not allowed to carry a gun around and shoot someone um, in Australian society anyway. Um, because I believe that they're committing a crime. Well, I mean, broadly speaking, even in America, you in the places you're allowed to carry a gun. Broadly speaking, you're not meant to shoot people hmm. unless they're black. Well, yeah, mostly, hmm. but yeah. So there's a whole bunch of powers that we give to police, which are, as Richardson says, are extraordinary powers and should only be used. Um, I mean, if surveillance is supposed to only be used against. Uh, to combat serious crime, which is supposed to be things with a jail sentence of five years, or in some cases seven years or more was the original plan. Mm. He he says five years or more should be the, the case, and certainly no fewer than three. So if it's a crime, great, but the, the maximum term is like two years or less, well, you don't get to use these intrusive surveillance powers at all, is, is his thinking. And, it's like, and I'm kind of on board with that. Interestingly enough, um, the, the threshold for... Many of the laws passed in the recent in recent years is two years or more, yes. and due to weird things in some states, and of course, uh, murder on Thursday laws and all of that, mm. uh, you know. So it might it might be manslaughter, but it's actually murder if you only punch them once, yep. and has a higher penalty. So, or something. But the one I always use in this context is the example in Queensland, where graffiti on a public building is a two-year jail sentence. Mm. I mean, maximum sentence. Um, so, yes, apparently graffitiing a public building is, of course, a worse crime than graffitiing a house or commercial property because, you know, you're, it's an attack yeah, on the state. Yeah, so, so we have all these weird tweaks to laws that have been done in, in isolation that have ended up with kind of perverse situations. And then, like, other things like copyright infringement has some massive jail sentence which is like nearly the same as physically beating someone almost to death. And it's like, these really? Are these both equally severe? That is for though, yes. They say that's if you're commercially dis- uh, commercially distributing, um, i.e. doing it in bulk and charging money for it, uh, you know, um, insert name of shitty American movie here. Yeah. So there's, there's some odd... Um, uh, when you put it to people side by side like that, it looks very strange, and generally mm. people don't agree with it. But it's it's grown up over time, where it's you know, certain vested interests have pushed for greater penalties. It's always greater penalties, never for fewer. Well, or, or politics, like the one punch laws in New South Wales were because uh, two upper middle class white boys both happened to get punched in the face in King's Cross and fell down and hit their head and died. Uh, I think it was two people in the space of several months and therefore it's a crime wave and therefore we must stop this. Um, and I'm sure that's how when fights break out in King's Cross, these are these are the thoughts in the minds of drunken 19-year-olds is, wait, 
if I punch him suddenly the once and he falls down, I could go to jail. So mm. what I'll do is just kick him a few times, wait till he's on the ground, and then punch him. Yep. And then I'll only get six months. Yep. Suspended. Mm. Because we were drunk and young and male and stupid. Yes. Well, that's that's so we've we've solved everything there by by creating these laws. It's great. Um, it's a wonderful thing Fantastic. about laws. Well, thank you, you Justin. One, we've solved all stops. of that. Great. Um, so I think we. My <laughs> job's done. We should right. now move on to corporate values as well as societal values, <laughs> uh, because we mentioned um, you know one billionaire nerd earlier, Elon Musk. I think we do have to come to Mark Zuckerberg of Musk Meta Luke? fame. Mm. I mean, we used to call that Facebook, and I think it still is at Facebook.com, but. He spoke about their new corporate values the other day and he's part of a, re- a report on them from Yahoo Finance. Mark Zuckerberg, a Meta founder, uh, wants his employees to be known as MetaMates. I guess that makes us, Julie, Yahoo's. Uh, but again, MetaMates, just, uh, just really corporate jargon that really means absolutely nothing. You mean to tell me if you're in Facebook's headquarters, if you happen to be there at all, you're going to go up to a water cooler or a coffee cooler and say, hey, what's up, MetaMate? Probably not. Uh, I think it just shows uh, the clear disconnect between uh, the, ma- the management team over Meta and probably a lot of employees inside the company right now. It's a longer report. He goes on to say that, although he and his female colleague go on to talk about how, uh, yes, there really does seem to be a disconnect at Facebook, uh, that if you did start using this in any normal company, you'd be ostracised as some kind of... <laughs> Freak. Uh, And then he says, Yahoo, again a few times. He does work for a company that has an exclamation mark in its name. Uh, We'll come to the rest of the values in a minute, but I did want to say they do explain that at Instagram, another meta company, they apparently refer to each other as shipmates. And Mm. Instagram is the ship, and then you have shipmates, and then it's mates. I'm a mate. So it's something about they're the hierarchy of, you know, the three things we care about. We care about the ship, we care about our shipmates, and we care about ourselves. Uh, as uh, I, yeah. I believe it comes from naval terminology. I think that's where, it, like, it was originally, um, you know, ship, shipmate, self. Because yes. if you don't care for the ship, all of you die. Yes. It's not the same at Instagram. You can just leave. Uh-huh. Um, and as, even and if the entire like company Facebook. founders, to mm. use a ship-based word, <laughs> yeah, you just walk away. I mean, maybe with some stock options that are now worthless, but you've mm. probably been paid quite well along the way. Yeah, it's not like you, you suddenly have to, you know, jump out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and attempt to swim to safety um, across shark-infested waters. And, look, as much as I would like Facebook to sink beneath the waves, I don't think that this um, analogy actually works very well. And it does. I mean, it's it's just mental. Like this is – there is something very <laughs> wrong with the people who come up with this kind of idea. Like they, they're very earnest about it and they seem to believe that other people will do this as – it's this idea that a company will be your friend and it's it's quite disturbed, I think. It, it really is. It, well, your friend, yes. But I, honestly, there is a lot of this. Um, I mean, I, I consult with Silicon Valley companies quite a bit, so I, yes, I'm I do know them a bit. And 
some of them do do this. Like there is this weird cultish behavior, particularly with salespeople. It's very rah-rah, very American um, kind of way of doing things. But it does feel like it's maybe getting a little bit out of hand here. Yes, it's sort of like, you know, ideas for making people friends from people who have no idea how to make friends because, you know, for better or worse, they they might be on on the autism spectrum. They might not have had the socialisation of whatever. And that's and that's fine. But there are plenty of people who do know about this stuff in a corporate context. And you'd think that a company with as much money as Facebook would be able to find some of them and maybe give them some money and then listen to what they have to say. But the fact that company, I mean, it does remind me of um, when I was at business school because you know, I have an MBA for my sins. Um, oh, we, the more I find a, out about you, Justin, the worse a human being you become. I know. Oh, it's, it's This is very true and it can only get worse from here. Um, we had a subject called, I think it was, it was a human resources subject anyway. I think it was, I can't remember the name of it. Um, but I remember sitting there and part of the reason I did the MBA is what, am I mental? It's like, I don't get it. All of this is just wrong and weird. I'm going to go find out if, if it's me that's mistaken. It's like, no, no, not really. Cause we did all these case studies and had all this research about how you run a company and, and how people motivating people and organizing them into teams and blah, 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 blah. And there's decades and decades of research about how this works and what doesn't work and and I sort of I asked the professor so we've known all this stuff for 20 30 years right mm. and there are lots of people with MBAs who work at very large companies yes how come none of them do any of this and there was a very uncomfortable silence <laughs> for quite some time after that question and I don't remember getting an answer so that probably tells you something. Should we look at Meta's, the rest of Meta's new corporate values very quickly? Sure. You can it just sort of rate the them all. Imploding, you can rate so. them all out of you know, zero to five, perhaps. Mm. Okay. They used to have move fast, which is part of move fast and break things. Maybe they mm. drop the break things. But move fast is now move fast together. Right. So do, how, hmm, are, are we going to tie each other, everyone together? Are we, are we all Have going an agreed to join plan, into the, maybe. do we all get into the one boat and row really hard? Are we, you know, is this some kind of human centipede arrangement? How, how exactly is this going to work? Would, would Zuckerberg be at the front or the back? Or the front, obviously. Uh, or he, uh, yes. Well, well, I don't know. Is, do androids have a front? I suppose they do. He'd have to be at the front. Mm. Be bold is going to be replaced with build awesome things. Yes, well, awesome can mean many things. <laughs> it means to inspire awe. Uh, oh, only if you're a traditionalist. I suppose awesome, yeah. Awful. I mean, but awesome has become such a devalued word. It oh, has. that's awesome, they say, is like the lights on the front of a bus are now slightly brighter LEDs. Yes. So, I, I yes, well, Facebook is going to build those kinds of awesome things. It's like, yeah, great. Bye-bye. I've got a new one, new focus content. on long-term impact. That's not going to be a thing. That's like, what does that even mean, focus on long-term impact? 
how do you focus long term? That's the opposite of focus. When you have to report your share price quarterly and make up shit. What's well, so, so, Yeah, well, it's like focus on the long term. I, I know, this is them just going, oh, no, we totally care. We're going to be a nice company now. Uh, it's like, yes, we've spent 20 years building a horrible one. Be open is gone. Not that they ever were open. Uh, but that's now live in the future. Good. Let them. <laughs> Please. If we can find, if we could, I think this is a genuine reason for inventing a time, inventing time travel is so that we can package up Facebook and send it off far into the far future where it can't hurt us anymore. Be open um, is back. The one that uh, has changed, the next, apparently the order matters, uh, but be open is still there. That's the next item. What it replaces is be direct and respect your colleagues. That's gone now. No more direct. But but the next two the next two kind of replaced that as well. Be direct mm. and respect your colleagues was one of them. And it's What's, now two of them? Well, yes, there is employees. Well, it's less of a thing and more something Zuckerberg said during his presentation. Employees are not supposed to quote nice ourselves to death. Right. And because Facebook has definitely been guilty of being overly nice thus far. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I can see how yep. that would work. Mm. And of course, last, of course, Meta, MetaMates, me. Well, it's the perfect coda, really. Um, well done. Good job. Since the beginning of February, Facebook's share price has dropped 30%, uh, at least uh, in some. Yes, so that tells you something. And on the Twitters, uh, Brandy Lynn Forever, whoever she uh, is, a random person, but she says, my kids, 13 and 14 years old, both have Oculus Quest 2, which is the VR thing that you use to connect to the metaverse. They've Mm. officially cut their usage in half. I don't know which official uh, declared this, but they stopped doing it. (laughs) But the 13-year-old said, quote, it sucks. I've done everything there is, and it's just boring now. That's a lot like life, really. <laughs> <laughs> At thirteen. <laughs> At thirteen. The, the ennui has set in early. It's like excellent, like a good nihilist. Um, yes, I. It, it. I think the death of Facebook is probably inevitable. Um, good. Not too big to die. Oh, never too big to die. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. It's, I mean, we've seen that with others before. Mm. So this is, Facebook was just the way it's structured. It was always going to start running up against these sorts of issues. Mm. And it's very funny to me that it was actually the point, like it could do anything it liked as long as the line went up. Well, that's that's what startups are about, right? The line has to keep yes. going up, and and generally technology companies as well. Like, I think there's a saying or business saying is like, you know, a profit will hide a multitude of sins. So as mm. long as you're making loads of money for lots of people, they'll forgive all sorts of stuff. Mm. They'll let you get away with it as soon as the gold dries up, if that's a metaphor. Um, soon as the money stops flowing people will abandon ship. So this is so the ship analogy is actually quite good because <laughs> in some ways because it's on fire 
Um, and a whole bunch of other people have decided that they don't want to be on this particular ship anymore, and they're all going. They started to jump off. the The issue for them is that once you start having people go that this place sucks, we're leaving. Eventually, the only people who are left are the people that you will be left if you left with if you stick around. And it feel like the 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 stench of death has started to whiff off the thing a bit when you when you have that much of a drop. That, that's the drop in share price based on a fairly minor, like about a million people or something, um, reduction in daily user count. But it's not growing anymore. Mm. It's run out, it's 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 run out of new marks to to bring into the fold. And MySpace collapsed very, very quickly once the stench of death took hold. And now, a brief word from Tim Wilson, the Liberal member for Goldstein in South East Melbourne. We're all counting down the days until we no longer have this Leader of the Opposition and his pointless and menial matters of public importance because we all know what's going to happen at the election, which is, of course, the government is going to be returned. The government is going to be returned, Justin, at the next federal election, reckons Tim Wilson. I mean, currently the polling and the betting markets suggest otherwise. Mm. We've been asking every guest recently for their election predictions. Were we still doing that in October? We were, and I was a bit on the fence because it was looking a little bit more line ball back then. Mm. I, I mean, I still... Never underestimate the ability for Labor to fuck it up. Um, if given, I mean, given the opportunity, they will absolutely lose it. Um, but it is very much theirs to lose, particularly this week with the the amping up of the national security angle and the like, the, just the degree of unhingedness in the, mm. the statements about the, oppos- the opposition at the moment, it really does reek of desperation. And if that's where they're up to at this point in the campaign, there's not, like, in terms of managing your energy levels, there's not real, there's not a lot of room to go up from here. Like, if you're already accusing the, the opposition party of being under the influence of foreign powers, and we haven't even declared the election yet. Mm. It it's going to be an exciting time. Well, they kind of have to do it now because they can do it in Parliament House, where parliamentary privilege prevents any defamation action or comeback. Well, Whereas as soon as the election is declared, they have to make these statements out outside in the bright sun, um, mm. where people can go back at them. Yeah, good point. Um, I mean, yes, you can say anything you fucking like in Parliament House. Weird law. Yeah, I mean, well, I I expect we'll see all sorts of dark, overtoned, with scary music attack ads will start hitting the rotation. It's not going to be pretty. Well, I mean, I was um, watching the the American Football Festival earlier this week. uh, Oh, yes. I want. um, And I was alarmed and amused by the amount of yellow um, from the Palmer United Party, or whatever they're calling themselves today. United Australia Party. Yes, of course they are. Um, 
They, which, of course, was one of Australia's most successful political parties some years ago, and they're trying to pretend they're the same thing. Yes, how the mighty have fallen. Um, well, look, it's they're, they're going for a reach and frequency thing where they're just saturating the airwaves with mindless slogans like freedom, freedom, freedom. So they'll probably and who can argue against votes. freedom? Yes, exactly. So they will probably pick up a few votes. Um, oh, yeah. Whether it'll be enough to to wrangle a senator or you know one MP who can hopefully push through pro mining legislation will be an interesting um, exercise. Well, favours so will be owed. Oh, big time! Um, but that's what happened last time. So it's uh, mm. that, that's that, that's the same play that they did in the last election. Well, it is. And as I uh, mentioned in a, another recent episode, during January, Clive Palmer spent $5 million on digital advertising, so the social medias and whatever, alone, yep. let alone those full-page and or wraparound newspaper ads, let alone all the billboards, let alone yep. all of the broadcast TV and radio spots. Yep. So it's a there's a lot of money being sloshed around to just make sure that people remember the yellow. Uh that's that's an interesting dynamic. Um, that will make for a possibly more chaotic, and I would say, you know, who's going to win at the moment? I reckon a what a, a split parliament, hung parliament, hung parliament, really is probably more likely. But oh, we've got I, all those independents. We've got the the people wearing yellow. There might just be enough, yep. given that the current coalition. Margin is like one seat. Yep. Yes, and that's it. So this whole, like the last three years has been the government weirdly behaving as if they have a mandate and a 75-seat advantage and the opposition going along with it for reasons that will always baffle me. Mm. Um, So, yeah, we may well end up in a a situation that we had a decade ago where we have essentially a hung parliament and there will be a lot more horse training going on, which... In some ways nice. it's going to be messy, but in other ways is probably good for democracy. Um, it'll probably be healthy to have a lot more discussion about many of these issues, even but I, I'm also given pause by that because when we do have discussion about some of these topics, like, you know, are gay people really people? Um, are, yeah. and, you know, are they human and should they be allowed to marry each other? It's like, Really, that's what we're going to spend our time debating, and I, I fear mm. that we're going to have a lot more of those really ugly conversations. That well, they're already there. Well, they're already as we there. saw um, in in recent weeks uh, with the whole issue of trans kids in schools. Yes, so that what so that's why I'm torn about this idea of like I right. a greater participation of these minority views may mean that we'll have increased democracies. Like yeah, a lot of people are going to get hurt by that. Mm. But it's not like I really want managed democracy either. Mm. Well, uh, as we record this, it's the evening of the 17th of February, quite a way before uh, you, dear listener, will have access to our wisdom. Uh, but uh, over recent couple of, or a few weeks, the odds have settled. Uh, Sportsbet, and I should mention that Sportsbet um, has, has not been the perfect corporate entity in recent <laughs> months either. I'll tell you a bit about that next episode because this episode is already long enough. Uh, but the odds have settled down to a Labour victory in 
dollar thirty to dollar thirty five in the low dollar thirties. Coalition victory, three dollars ish for the win. Um, that seems to have settled down, but as they say, a week is a long time in politics. Now, mm. I want to uh, finish uh, by quoting Jewel Shepard on Twitter, who says, Parochialism is naff, but Australia's Electoral Commission is simply better than yours. <laughs> and uh, she quotes, uh, she then provides rather a screenshot of someone with the username I underscore changed underscore user who asks, can we draw dicks on the ballot paper? And the Electoral Commission replies, sigh, yes. <laughs> it's glorious. They they have been putting up with so much shit on Twitter, but patiently explaining to nearly everyone how it works um, I think they're doing very well. I might come back to that closer to the election. But Justin I, Warren, for now, so. we'll probably come back to you closer to the election as well. Fabulous. Or closer to the heat death of the legislation, because all this will just be <laughs> thrown out. Everything we have discussed here tonight will become moot once the election is called. Excellent. We can do it all again. Thank you, dear listener, for staying with us. All of this is totally irrelevant. Thank you, Justin. <laughs> well, dear listener, before I go, a quick update. Uh, obviously, the main conversation was recorded a couple of weeks back. Uh, as I speak to you now, it's the afternoon of Sunday the 6th of March, and those betting odds really haven't changed very much. Sportsbet is currently offering $1.32 for a Labor win, $3.20 for a Coalition win, and $41 for uh, a Prime Minister coming from any other party. Yeah, that's that's not going to happen. Uh, but of course, there's uh, still a ways to go. The election uh, does have to be held uh, by the 21st of May, or at least a Senate election does. Uh, it's likely, it's almost certain, in fact, uh, that we'll have the budget announced on Tuesday, the 29th of March. Uh, we'll have uh, the uh, the leader of the opposition's uh, speech in reply on the Thursday night, as is traditional, and yeah, the election will be called straight after that. So we'll be into the campaign. <sighs> I guess we'll have to cover that. Uh, do support Justin Warren's stuff. Uh, his Red Bubble uh, store, I've linked to it on the podcast website. He has stickers that can warn people about things that have been made by humans. Uh, you can attach them to uh, objects, uh, uh, pointing out that they are simply an innocent uh, weather monitoring device and not a surveillance camera at all. And uh, like the mouse mat I use, uh, there are things that warn of the dangers of hexagons. Check that out. And uh, Justin is also one of the people interviewed on a podcast series called Motherload. It's an excellent series. It's about the early hacker scene in Melbourne going back to, uh, well, the early 1990s. Uh, and, uh, yeah, some of the best hackers in the world came out of Melbourne back then, including a chap you may have heard of, Julian Assange. And uh, the series does kind of trace uh, the history of that from the beginning 
of of hackers on the internet uh, up until the creation of WikiLeaks. Uh, it's well worth listening to. Uh, it's called Motherload, uh, and indeed, in the next series, I hope to have uh, the producer Greg Mueller uh, on to talk a bit about that which gives me a perfect opportunity to mention. Yes, the next series uh, will only be possible if you, dear listener, support it. Please support the 9pm, what's it called? The 9pm Autumn Series 2022. Just go to the 9pmedic.com, click on the link, and uh, if you can support the pod, please do. That's all the edict for now. Uh, links on the website. I've already plugged the possible campaign. The next episode, hmm, um, I'll probably do a solo episode in the next couple of weeks. Otherwise, it's ideally the autumn series kicking off at the end of March. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. The 9pm edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.